So uh, we look forward to what God has for us this year. And we're going to take a look at a man, a king of Israel, who has much to teach us um, today. So we are in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. We're going to go from 17 to chapter 20. Um, anybody read it ahead of time? I posted it on Facebook. Anybody get a chance to do that? A few of you guys did. Fantastic. All right. You will be less lost. Good. Um, I thought about starting the sermon off with an illustration, maybe um, Thomas Edison or Rosa Parks or Helen Keller, or Abraham Lincoln, someone who faced um, adversity and uh, failed, and yet uh, we look back on as um, amazing successes. Jehoshaphat is the king we want to look at today, and as the king of Judah, he also um, had many failures, but we look at the kings in the Old Testament, especially in First and Second Kings and in First and Second Chronicles, and we get report cards for how the kings do. And Jehoshaphat is one of the good ones. And so we want to focus in on his story. His story is really um, good for us. And just in case you haven't been in the book of Chronicles recently in your Bible reading, um, let me address a few issues. Um, sometimes you have, how many of you have done a Bible reading program that just goes straight through? Like straight through the Bible. Okay. How many of you have done one that bounces around? Okay. Chronological. Anyone done one of those? Yeah. Okay. So. If you've done straight through, or you've done a chronological, you'll get uh, Samuel, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, all right, smashed together, right? If you're doing a chronological one, they're even harmonized and meshed together. If you're bouncing around, you get to come back to these stories um, at a different time of the year, and I think that there's um, good in both of those types of readings. But sometimes we get the chronicles and we just read Kings and we say, "Wait, did I just read this? There's more Kings I can't pronounce their names of again." <laughs> Um, what's, what's going on with this? And I, I want to point out to you that um, this shouldn't be odd to us because we start the New Testament with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels, four perspectives on the same life of Christ. We get a similar thing in um, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and a few other books. Uh, but the, the reason that we have them smashed together is because um, hundreds of years ago, the Bible got rearranged in its order for a different uh, uh, language for people that spoke Greek. The Hebrew Bible um, most often has Chronicles as the very last book of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Okay, so if you look at a Hebrew Bible, Kings and Chronicles are spaced out big time. Um, in our English Bibles, they're back to back. And the point is that Kings was written earlier and Chronicles was written later. And the reason was because the historical events are all true. But the emphases are, are different. So if you read Kings and Chronicles next to each other, for example, the life of Jehoshaphat, which we're going to study today, he gets very little time in 1 Kings. He gets a lot of time here in 2 Chronicles. In fact, he gets more time than some more prominent kings. And so what's interesting about that is the chronicler is telling us uh, to pay attention to this, that some of the details that the author of Kings left out for good reason um, are now included by the chronicler for equally good reasons. The context of the book of Chronicles is actually after the exile. So you remember we just studied the book of Daniel. Daniel and um, his friends and many others were exiled, taken away from Jerusalem and Judah and taken to Babylon and other places in the east. And Seventy years later, roughly, uh, King Cyrus of Persia allows Judeans to go back to the land. Um, and it is when they go back with excitement that they're back, they start to rebuild, and then things fall apart. There's oppression, 
Uh, there's economic downturn. There's devastation all around. And it is in that context that the book of Chronicles is written, is edited, is pieced together from stories that the Israelites and the Judeans knew, but put in a specific order, including and excluding certain things to tell the story. Now, some people, skeptics, atheists, many who are opposed to the Bible, would like to tell you that this just shows that none of this is true, and then uh, the, the victors write history, and it all goes wherever they want it to go, and it, you can't trust it. The problem is the Israelites and the Judeans are not the victors of history. Um, they're the losers in history. Um, and so that immediately should humble our opinions of what we can and cannot uh, think about what we look at in the scriptures. When we look at the scriptures, what we're seeing are the preserved writings of God's people, preserved for thousands of years for us. And the chronicler is not trying to edit history. So for example, the, the story of David in Chronicles does not include the incident, the light way of saying it, with Bathsheba. Uh, Samuel does include that. There are certain stories that are included um, that make the Israelites and the Judeans look very bad. And so some skeptics will say, well, look at Chronicles. It just kind of papers over that and makes them look nice. And I just say, you haven't read the book because a lot of these guys are, are failures and wicked and some of their wickedness is excluded and some of their wickedness is included. And the point there is an, is an emphasis. How many of you have watched a reboot of a series? How many of you have seen a modern retelling of an old story, right? There, there are different emphases. There are different things left out and, and, and pieced back together to tell not a different story, but to tell the same story from a different perspective. That's what's happening here in Chronicles. And so the, the people that are receiving this work are different people than us because they can tolerate the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, which I don't know if you're there soon in your Bible reading, but it is fantastic reading name after name after name after name after name new chapter name after name after name. nine chapters of genealogies why is that in there to bore us of course <laughs> no it's not in there to bore us it's in there for a people that really counted that incredibly important how many of you know the names of your great great grandparents some hesitant hands went up and they weren't immediate now, that's, that's normal for us, right? That, that's normal. You probably, very few of us met our great-great-grandparents. But in, the, in Bible times, that was incredibly important. It was a massive part of your identity. For the children of Israel, it marked out which tribe they were from. And that was hugely important. It marked out who they were descended from and how they interacted inside of God's people. So, as the people re receive what we call First and Second Chronicles, it was one book originally, they are a battered minority population living in their homeland but under foreign rule. There's devastation all around. Everything must be rebuilt. The vineyards, the farms, the crops, uh, all of the animals that they used to own that are gone were used up. The buildings that are shattered and strewn about there is nothing whole and everything, the infrastructure, the cities, Jerusalem itself, the temple must be rebuilt. So what is the author of Chronicles doing? Well, the author of Chronicles mainly excludes the northern kingdom. If you remember your biblical history, Saul, David, and Solomon rule all Israel. But after Solomon, the kingdom splits into two. And the northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The chronicler does not deny that Israel, the northern kingdom, existed. 
he just doesn't, he's not interested in that story very much because what he's trying to tell is he's trying to tell the story of the southern kingdom of Judah. So there's a more intent and exclusive focus on the kings of Judah. Why is that important? Well, for the Israelites, they knew that the kings were supposed to come out of the line of Judah. Eventually, as they put together prophecies and God revealed more and more of what he was going to do, they understood that the future Messiah was going to come from the line of Judah. It's extremely important as a broken people, as they try to restructure their society and look to the future. Jehoshaphat, as I said, is a very minor character in Kings. In Chronicles, he is a major character given four chapters worth of focus. So we want to take a look today at this king. And I've entitled the sermon, Set Your Heart to Seek God. That is one of the report cards for Jehoshaphat, that he set his heart to seek God. So we're going to look today at the life and legacy of Jehoshaphat. But we're going to pray first and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as the cars drive by and the, the crows caw and things are happening all around us, Lord, as, as some of us are far away and some of us are stuck at home, Lord, we ask that this morning you would pierce with your sharp sword of your word into our hearts and our minds today, uh, that we would see that your word is good and it is meant for our good. So Lord, help us to mine the riches that we see here, both today and throughout the week, Lord, I pray that we would see this part of the story that we are now in. This is our story. We have been grafted into this Jewish tree, this family line. Lord, your son is still a Jewish man. And Lord, we long to know more about his family tree and our spiritual family tree. So Lord, this morning, give us insight and wisdom as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 17. What's interesting about the king Jehoshaphat is that he is the son of a good king. Most of the kings in Israel and Judah's history are not good kings. In fact, Israel, the northern kingdom, has zero, count it, zero good kings. None of them make the grade. The southern kingdom doesn't do much better, but they have about eight. Eight good kings. And here we have one of them. What's interesting to see is that Asa, Jehoshaphat's dad, was a, a, a follower of Yahweh who stayed mostly true to him. Now, you can go ahead and read that and see where he went wrong and where he disobeyed the Lord, but he is rated as a good king. And so Jehoshaphat's a church kid. I like to think of it that way. Jehoshaphat's a church kid. He has a, a, a Christian <laughs> upbringing. He is the son of the king. He's brought up to know uh, the Lord and to know his ways and his commandments. And he, unlike many of the kings continues in the good example of his father. And so look at verse 3 of 2 Chronicles 17, and we'll see just a brief summary of Jehoshaphat and his character. Verse 3 says, The Lord, and by the way, when you see Lord, all caps, right, that is translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's the, the covenant, the personal covenant name of God. Um, it is more personal than the title God or Lord. Um, it is Yahweh. And so sometimes you'll, you'll maybe hear one of us say Yahweh and you look in your Bible and you're like, what Bible is he reading? Same Bible, just looking at Lord, all caps, is Yahweh. So in verse 3, the Lord, Yahweh, was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the balls 
but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, Yahweh established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of Yahweh and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. What we see here at the very beginning is the goodness of Jehoshaphat's reign. And that goodness is not predicated on his being a nice guy or being a good person, but it's predicated on his following in the footsteps of David and by obeying the laws and commandments that the Lord had set forth. They were there for him to follow, and he chose to follow them. Now, here's the issue when we read through the scriptures. These people had access to God's word. We have amazing access to God's word. Right now on your phone, you can grab dozens of versions of the Bible in English. We are incredibly blessed. You can look up all kinds of things for helps in reading the scriptures. These people had God's word. They had the temple. They had God's presence. They had God's priests and his Levites. We are in a similar situation. We have so many resources. There is no excuse for us. We are held to a higher standard. We have God's word. Now we must act on it. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. It says he walked in the commandments. You like that, that picture of walking in the commandments. He's, he's living life. He's moving inside of the parameters of the commandments. And not in a strict legalistic way, but in a way that understands why did God give his law to his people? How long do you think we're going to have to deal with that? Should we sing a song? Louder than the alarm? No, we'll keep going. I think that what we need to understand here is that he's walking in the parameters of God's law because God's law is what's best. I think sometimes we have an understanding of the Old Testament of they worked for their salvation and the New Testament, they understood grace finally. No, no, no. God was gracious all the way through. God was gracious to his people in the Old Testament and they walked in his grace by walking in his law. Now, when God gives laws, they can obviously be twisted. And our proud hearts can keep those laws for the wrong reasons, right? Um, Many of us, because of our uh, pedigree, because of our growing up in the church, because of degrees or schools that we went to or or whatever, have a very, very susceptibility to pride because of what we know. And, And it's really easy then to lean on our knowledge and knowledge puffs up. And so what we want to do is we want to walk in the commandments, not just know them in our head. We want to walk in them, make them a way of life. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. I find it interesting in verse six that his heart was courageous. How? In the ways of Yahweh. So courage is evident in lots of different ways, okay? I mean, we can, we can talk about William Wallace or we can look at um, you know, movies, or we can look at historical examples of people that took great courage. But it's interesting that Jehoshaphat's courage is in the ways of the Lord. And I think that's what we might need to look at in 2021 is being courageous in our lives, in our culture, in the ways of the Lord. That's the key thing that we need to do. We need to be courageous, not in a brash uh, way that, that shows off our strength 
our, our will, our knowledge. We need to walk courageously in the ways of the Lord. Jesus walks courageously into the cross. He walks courageously in not calling down legions of angels on his enemies. He walks courageously in walking through suffering to achieve glory for himself and for his church. So I think that that we need to make sure that our courage is grounded in the ways of the Lord and not defined in a superficial or secular way. Our courage will often not look like courage. It will look like a thousand little obediences when the temptation is to go with the flow, to not be noticed, to not be noticeable. In fact, most of our courage will be built up in little ways, and the courage is only noticeable in the big events if it has been perfected and moved and shaped by the little events. You don't just show up at a hugely consequential thing and show courage if you've never had it before in the little things. As Jehoshaphat walks with courage, what he does is he goes against the cultural norms of the region and he smashes the idols. Now that's a cool picture, but what that also is, is a picture of resistance because every culture around ancient Israel was polytheistic. Every culture around Israel was transactional. We must satisfy the gods so they don't do this to us. If we do enough of this, they'll give us enough of that. If there are bad things happening to us, we must not be doing a good enough job appeasing them. That is the the nature of every culture around Israel. And by the way, that is every culture around us. Is transactional, materialistic, tit for tat, give to get. That's what's going on all around us. And the way of the Lord is different. And so Jehoshaphat basically says to the people, you will not worship that way. I will expend energy, political capital, government expense (laughs) to set the example for you that we will not worship these other gods and goddesses. And we will not worship in the ways that they worship. We have a way to worship. God has given us direction on how to worship, and that is the way we must do it. Now, what's very interesting to see is how this works itself out, because it's not just an edict from on high. Obey! Now! More obeying! That's that, that, I mean, are, are you really inspired? Like, yes! I won't sin anymore. He said it from up front. I won't do it. What we need is consistent constant immersion in what's going to keep us different from the surrounding culture and that is God's word look at verse 7 now what's 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 necessary here is to get past the hard to pronounce names okay it's okay if you mispronounce the names you don't speak Hebrew. No, no one here speaks Hebrew, okay? Well, we have a few, a few of us that can read it a little bit, okay? If you can't read the name, don't skip the whole thing. Figure out what's going on there. So we have all these names in verse 7. But what are these people doing? They're officials from Jehoshaphat to teach in the cities of Judah. And he also sends Levites with lots of funny names and two priests. What are they doing? Verse 9, and they taught in Judah having the book of the law of Yahweh with them. 
they went through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Think about this. In, in a culture where probably many, if not most, are illiterate, where we don't have books, we have tablets, we have scroll, and not this, <laughs> stone, okay? We're writing on pieces of wood, perhaps some animal skins, maybe some papyrus here and there. If, if you don't have a library at home, where is your knowledge of God located? It's located in anything that you remember or memorize and in the teachers. That's where it's located. And so if the teachers don't teach, it doesn't get passed on, right? And we know that. Um, th- that's what happens in, in our own families, in our own churches, in the generations. If we're, not, if we're not vigilant to keep teaching, we're going downstream, and we're getting caught up with whatever is the, the norm around us. We must be constantly teaching and learning and teaching and learning. So let me encourage you, as you see the emphasis that Jehoshaphat places, how are we going to follow God? By sending out teachers. This morning, we had an announcement. We need more help in preschool. We need to teach our little ones. I have a little one in there. Please teach him. We, we need to be operating in a, in, a, in a sense that we need to pass on God's word in multiple ways. When we sing songs on Sunday morning, it's not because we have to. We have all these creative, melodic ways to speak God's word, to pray God's word. We have Sunday school classes. We have community groups that you can get involved in. In fact, a bunch of our young men right now um, spontaneously uh, have been doing a, a book study um, through the book, The Pursuit of Godliness. Um, that just started because one guy asked a bunch of other guys to do it. Um, we have one-on-one or, or small group discipleship opportunities. We have so many good ways of learning. Ask a trusted older believer about podcasts they listen to or a YouTube channel they subscribe to. Use discernment. There's a lot of junk out there, but it's also a lot of fantastic ways to learn. Listen, if you learned the Bible in Sunday school, it doesn't transfer on for years. You remember bits and pieces, right? But, but how many of you have forgotten something you've read in the Bible? Anybody forgotten something? Anybody read the Bible for the 400th time and so, wow, I didn't know it was in there. Yeah, we're not that smart, people. Come on. We've got to get back into God's word again and again and again and again and again. It is not an achievement. It's a way of life. We don't get to graduate from Bible stories. Well, those were fun when I was a kid. No. (laughs) How are we going to tell the next generation and the generation after that if we are not immersed in God's word? This is what Jehoshaphat did. He sent out the teachers. He wanted them out there telling the people God's word. As we move on to chapter 18, we see one of Jehoshaphat's downfalls. And we see interesting wording in verse 1 of chapter 18 that Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. Not necessarily a bad thing. I think we have two extremes here, okay? The one extreme is we have the prosperity gospel. Obey God and he'll give you lots of good stuff. Do good things for God and you'll have a better car. Do good things for God and you won't have any financial issues this year. Unfortunately, that is a rampant teaching, teaching throughout the world. In fact, Orange County is one of the epicenters of this heresy uh, that you serve God in order to get good stuff from him. If that's the case, you haven't read your Bible very well because Paul's not really rolling around in a a nice car, a nice chariot to the next city 
Um, he's walking, getting beat up, accumulating wounds and scars, and he is uh, finding out that this is not the way to get rich. So what's important here is that we, we understand that, yes, God does bestow riches and honor. In fact, there are a lot of rich followers of God in the Old Testament. It's not wrong to be rich. Jesus teaches us, and so does life and the Proverbs, that there's a lot of danger in riches. There's a lot of danger in wealth. In fact, it's harder for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So we, we need to have both of those. We need to understand that riches are not evil, but they are a great temptation. And God must be put first or else riches will be in the place of God. On the other hand, sometimes we have this poverty theology that we kind of selectively use, generally for other people, not ourselves. We like prosperity for us and poverty for others. But, but we say things like, well, if, if they have a lot of money, obviously they're not Christians or obviously they're not godly. They don't give it, why don't they give more of it away? You know, it's, we're so good at giving other people's money away, right? Well, if I, if I made what they make, I wouldn't drive that car. Okay, that's great. That's all hypothetical. What are you doing with what God has given you? Leave that one to the Lord. So we want to avoid a prosperity theology on one hand and a poverty theology on the other when we're reading the Old Testament. Jehoshaphat has great riches and honor. If we understand that God gave that to him, and he uses that in a right way, fantastic. If it gets in the way of God, it is wrong. Now, what does Jehoshaphat with great riches and honor do? He makes a marriage alliance with Ahab. Now, Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom, and Ahab is the, the wickedest king yet in the northern kingdom. He marries outside of Israel. He marries a pagan, and she, Jezebel, brings in all of this pagan worship to Israel, and Ahab's totally fine with it. So we're worshiping Baal, we're worshiping uh, Asherah, we're worshiping all of these false gods, and Jehoshaphat should have known better than to ally himself with Ahab. But he does it in a political expediency to cement their alliance. He gives his son in marriage to Ahab's daughter. The, the reason that that is wrong is because it is done for, for purely transactional reasons and is not taking into account the fact that we want our children to follow God. Jehoshaphat used his own son to cement an alliance with a wicked ruler. Now maybe he thought um, that this was, um, you know, he was going to uh, evangelize Ahab and get him to turn around, right? Um, dating as evangelism, not a good idea. It wasn't a good idea then, not a good idea now. Okay, but Jehoshaphat, still following the Lord, but making compromises, make, having some failures. He says in verse 3 to Ahab, I am as you are, my people is your people, we will be with you in the war. And they join in this war. Now, chapter 18, we're just going to have to skip quickly over it. Um, but there is a very interesting story inside of chapter 18 because Ahab is ready to go fight. Let's go fight. Let's ally ourselves. Let's go fight and let's win this city back for Israel. Jehoshaphat says, okay. And then Jehoshaphat says, wait, hold on. Shouldn't we like talk to a prophet of God first? And so Ahab brings in 400 prophets who we understand very quickly are not prophets of God. And they're all 400 of them like, yeah, king, you're going to win. Uh, we look in our crystal balls and you're going to win. And the king's like, yay, I'm great. You guys are great too. Raises for everybody. Okay. And everything is hunky-dory until Jehoshaphat says, but don't you have like a, like a 
prophet of Yahweh around here? And Ahab goes, man, yeah, there's this one prophet, and he only, he only ever gives me bad news, so I don't like listening to him. Okay, <laughs> principle number one, <laughs> gather advisors around you who will tell you what you don't want to hear. And Micaiah is brought in, and Micaiah speaks bad news to Ahab. Now imagine the courage of this. There's 400 prophets saying, yes, Ahab, God has decreed you will win this. And Micaiah says, nope. <laughs> Micaiah comes in and says, no, th- these guys are just making this up. I actually have been given access to the Lord as a prophet, and I know what's going to happen. And he, he tells of a scene um, in heaven where it might be disturbing, and we don't have time to go into the apologetics of this all today, but, but the Lord sends a spirit, a lying spirit, to entice Ahab to go to war. And so we understand that behind the physical and the material, there is an immaterial spiritual world. And in that world that we don't understand very well, um, the Lord is sovereign and he is in control. And when evil things and bad things and disasters happen, it is not out of God's control. But then we immediately have an issue. Because now are we saying that God is running all of this wickedness and evil. Now, you can talk to Troy about the answer to that after this. <laughs> but uh, Troy, just raise your hand. Look, there he is. He's ready to answer all your apologetics questions. Good. But what we see here is we see a sovereign God who is maneuvering behind the scenes that there is a spiritual war going on. And what ends up happening is Micaiah says, the Lord has declared disaster concerning you. If you go up, you will die. Now, the other prophets don't like this because obviously they're being shown to be um, wrong and uh, false prophets, which in Israel, false prophets should be stoned to death. And as, they, uh, as the king Ahab throws Micaiah in prison, um, he says, you know, let him, let him come out, but only when I get back in peace. And Micaiah says, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. He's very willing to let the chips fall where they may and let the Lord show who was right and who was wrong. Now, eventually in this, in this fight, King Ahab actually dies um, as the Lord had decreed, and Jehoshaphat escapes. Now, what's interesting is in the battle, Jehoshaphat is kind of a naive guy because Ahab wears a disguise, and Jehoshaphat doesn't. So he's wearing his kingly robes in the battle, easy to identify. And yet as, as it turns against him, Jehoshaphat in verse 31 cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. It shows God helping Jehoshaphat, the descendant of David, the follower of God, and it shows King Ahab, the one who had turned his back on Yahweh, being killed in battle. Now, this is not to say that Jehoshaphat um, is worthy of this. It is to say that when we follow the Lord, he hears our cries. That does not mean that we're always rescued. That's also prosperity theology. We're in the midst of a pandemic. I pray this pandemic puts to death the prosperity gospel around the world. We have crazy teachers saying ridiculous things about, about COVID, uh, that they're going to laugh it away, um, that it's, it's, it's not, nothing is happening. Um, and these prosperity gospel teachers are being proven to be hucksters. And, and I sure hope that, that we understand that we live in a sinful world. That's why this virus exists, because of sin. Okay, and, and it is not enough to say, well, God, God wants us to be healthy and wealthy, so go away, COVID. That's a superficial understanding of, the, of God and his creation and how he is managing this world. 
Evil things happen because the world has fallen. We cannot make easy A plus B equals C uh, formula all the time for why things happen. How many of you have received help in your life to afford something big? Anybody? Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, We are not merely those people who say, if you work hard, good things will happen to you. Anybody worked hard and been fired? Yeah, right? So, so let's, let's be careful that we don't just do this simple formula, putting things together like this. Jehoshaphat follows the Lord, and the Lord blesses him in ways um, that the Lord chooses. That the Lord chooses. You, I cannot stand up here and promise you high schoolers and college students that if you work hard and get a college degree, by the time you're 30, you'll have $500,000 saved up for retirement. I can't say that. that's, That's a stupid thing to say because the Lord never promises that. What I can say is if you follow the Lord with all your heart, that you will be blessed. In this life, in different ways, and for certain after you die. And that's a much better thing than 70 years of prosperity here in America. Billions and trillions of years in the kingdom of God outweigh those things. In chapter 19, Jehoshaphat escapes, he gets rebuked by a a prophet of God, and he learns from the prophet, he learns from God, and look at verse three. The prophet says, you did a bad thing, but nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asherot out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. Have set your heart to seek God. Have you, have I set our hearts to seek God? That is, you cannot passively fall into seeking God. Do you understand? Uh, you, you're not a church kid, and so you, you just follow God naturally. There is no following God naturally. There is following the flesh naturally and your sinful nature naturally. When we set our hearts to seek God, it is an active thing that we must do. 2020, 2020, was my worst Bible reading year of my life. I have to set my heart on God's word. It helps me to have a plan. So my plan is right here on a piece of paper to help me get closer to God. This is not a, I'm a really holy Christian. Look at me, I crossed the things off my list. This is a, I need God so desperately and if I don't plan it, it's not gonna happen. When we set our hearts to seek God, we set them. We actively do the work to seek after God. It is looking for someone. This is like hide and seek, right? It's the word seek. I, I was trying to, I typed the word seek in and I started looking seek. If you say seek enough, it just like loses its meaning. You're like, what am I doing? S-E-E-K. This is really weird. Seek. If we seek, search, go after God, then it's like hide and go seek. Okay, you don't count to 20. Ready or not, here I, ready or not, here I come? Yeah, well, that's, Left my brain for a second. Right or not, here I come. Scan the hiding places. Well, I don't see anyone. Well, you're missing the point. Hide and seek means you seek, right? So when we seek God, we set our hearts to seek him, we have to act on it. What action did Jehoshaphat take? He actively destroyed idols. If you and I are to actively seek God, we must smash the idols in our life. And perhaps it's easier to to see in a culture that actually had idols set up and standing stones and things that you could smash. 
But I dare say that it's not hard if we're, if we're spiritually seeking to follow God to see idols in our life that need to be smashed and that might come out physically. I don't know what that means for your material possessions or for the things in your life that, that set your schedule and set your life, but we must smash the idols in our lives. Maybe that means smashing those websites that you should not be visiting. Or perhaps the, the streaming service that you really like but is too much of a temptation. Perhaps it is pride in your life that you are out for you. You're out for number one. That idol, namely you, needs to be smashed. What did Jehoshaphat do? He went out and he sent out those and they, they, they took the idols and they ground them up and spread the ashes so they could not be reformed. So we don't hide our idols because we know where we hid them. And in moments of weakness and tiredness and desperation and anxiety and depression, we go back and go find it because we know where we hid it. If we smash our idols, they are much harder to reconstitute. That's not impossible. We are very creative people when it comes to our sin. But if we can smash those idols, then we can seek after God. Now, what does Jehoshaphat do? He continues to act on this seeking God. He appoints judges in chapter 19, verse 5. And he tells the judges in verse 6, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. In verse 8, he, he sets up Levites and priests and heads of families, and they're supposed to, to uh, govern and, and, and discipline their, their direct communities so that they follow the Lord more closely. Listen, when you fight a war, there must be offensive and defensive actions. When you play a sport, most sports have an offense and a defense. You must do both somewhat well to advance, to continue to do well. So we have places in our life where we need to go on defense, okay, to defend ourselves against Satan and sin and death and, and certain people in our lives that are, that are pulling us away from following God. And there are offensive actions that we take in order to keep on the path of following the Lord. When he sets, when Jehoshaphat sets up these Levites and priests and families in verse 9 of chapter 19, he charged them, thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord in faithfulness and with your what? Whole heart. With your whole heart. All of it, not leaving back part. With your whole heart serving the Lord. And it's interesting that in chapter 17, we saw that Jehoshaphat was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Look at the end of chapter 19. The last sentence, he tells the judges and the officers, deal courageously and may Yahweh be with the upright. He's not talking to soldiers. He's talking to officers and judges. He's talking to heads of households. He's talking to those with influence in their community. He's saying, deal courageously in your confrontation of sin. Deal courageously with how you follow the Lord. It's going to take courage primarily because it doesn't feel good all the time to follow the Lord. I am a per I hate conflict and confrontation. I shrink from it. I don't like it at all. It makes me sweat and feel nervous. I don't like it. 
Um, sometimes we have vigorous discussions on the elder board, and sometimes I just, I don't like this because people don't agree. Everybody agree. I don't like the conflict and the disagreement. It takes courage for me to step into that space sometimes. Now, some of you are the opposite. Some of you need to courageously shut your mouth, right? Like, I'm just ready to, yeah, I'll give you whatever I think all the time. Sometimes, so some of you, some of us, right, some of us need to take courage to get into the fray, and some of us need to, like, courageously tap the brakes, okay? Um, this is what it means to have courage. It doesn't mean to just grab a sword and go hack people to death. What it means is to follow in the ways of the Lord in the way that he does it. And what's great is we don't have just the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. How did Jesus courageously do these things? He said things that were unpopular, and he accepted consequences for them. That's courage. We see the, the apostles following the Lord, risking their physical health, um, not, not because they're fighting a battle, but because they're preaching God's word. It takes courage. You, junior hires and high schoolers and college students here, it takes courage to speak up in your friends group, doesn't it? You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to look like the nerd. You don't want to look like the, the, the Jesus follower, the Bible thumper. It takes courage to say no to the wrong things. So, so let's make sure that we understand courage um, in ways that apply to our lives because sometimes we think of courage, we're like, well, you know, our soldiers are courageous and our police officers are courageous. And praise God, they certainly are. But, but you and I can be courageous as well in the way that we follow the Lord. Now, chapter 20 is a new picture in the story of Jehoshaphat, and it's one of my favorite in the whole Bible. In fact, I have a note on my phone that next time we go to Israel on a tour, that I'm going to teach this from the top of Herodium next to Bethlehem, looking out into the wilderness, because this is where this happens. Just another reminder, this is history. This happened in a real place. This isn't Narnia. This is not Mordor. This is not uh, Hogwarts. Okay, this is, this is re a real place on the planet where, the, where these things happen. Now, what happens is um, that the neighbors to the east of Israel and Judah begin to band together and have a sneak attack against Judah. In fact, they make it to the other side of the Dead Sea, the western shore of the Dead Sea, without being detected. Which either means they took boats or they went all the way around the south end and they've made it to En Gedi. Now, En Gedi, for those of you that have been to Israel, is, is a beautiful place. It's the only spring on that side of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. I mean, like, there's nothing that's dead, okay? Um, the, the springs of En Gedi are, are life-giving, and in the middle of this brown, tan desert, there springs life from this, this, the springs and the waterfalls. It's a beautiful place. And it's at this beautiful place now that this, these armies have, have banded together, and they're now going to attack Judah. Verse 3 of chapter 20. What's Jehoshaphat's response? He's afraid. That's okay. There are things to be afraid of right? Um, I have to train my children to be afraid of the street, right? That is a good fear. You will not, you will not do good fighting against that car coming at you. That's a, that's a healthy fear. Now notice, if there are people coming to attack you, it's okay to be afraid. Courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. What does Jehoshaphat do? He was afraid, first instinct, set his face to seek Yahweh set his face to seek the Lord, proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah. First instinct, prayer. Joshua's first instinct is to go to the Lord. 
I wonder if that's our first instinct to go to the Lord. Are we self-sufficient enough to go, man, I might need some prayer, but let me try this first. Or I got this. I was trained to do this. Implicitly saying, Lord, I don't need you. Or is our first instinct prayer? Help, Lord. Well, let's see the type of prayer that Jehoshaphat prays. What happens is there's a, a, an enemy coming, physical enemy, to physically attack and destroy Judah. And the king gathers the people together so that they might come to seek the Lord together. This is huge. We seek the Lord in a special way when we are together. The gathering of the church, as we've learned in this last year, um, looks different than maybe we had hoped, but there is power, there is strength, there is definition in being gathered together. So, so for those of us this year that have, that have watched online in our jammies, enjoy that, but don't get used to it. That's not what church is. There is something about us that God made us to be here physically together. Now, I'm not criticizing people that are staying home because of COVID. If you, are, if you need to stay home because of issues going on with your, with your body and your health, totally understand that. But here's the deal. The regular gathering of the saints of God is what constitutes a church. This is what we are here to do on the grass. We have worked hard this year to be able to do this when possible. We want to be able to continue to do this. Our persecuted brothers and sisters do this in forests, in caves, in literal upper rooms all around the world today so that they might be together to what? Seek the Lord. Now, when they seek the Lord, Jehoshaphat leads this, this mass of Judeans in prayer to God, and he reminds God in his prayer of what God has done for them. He calls upon God to do what he has done for the, the fathers of Israel, for Abraham, for Jacob, for Joshua, for those that have come before. Now do this for us. Look at verse 10 of chapter 20. And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt. <laughs> He's actually recounting history. God actually told the Israelites, you can't go to those guys. Those are like cousins. You can't go to your cousins and evict them. You can destroy the Canaanites, but do not evict these guys. And so Jehoshaphat's saying, listen, Lord, we didn't touch them, and now they're attacking us. This isn't fair. Help. Behold, they reward us, verse 11, by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? And here's my favorite part. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. I love that this next line rhymes in English because it helps me so much. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a good prayer. You should put that one in your back pocket, front pocket, all over the place. That's, that's a good one. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. Now notice this is, not a, this is not merely passive. This is not a, okay, God. This is not let go and let God. This is seeking God by watching for what he's going to do and doing what you can in the meantime. So we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, is a word of faith. This situation seems impossible. It's a surprise attack. We don't see a way out of this. Our eyes are on you. Now let, let's be clear. You may pray this prayer and experience devastation in your life. You may pray this prayer and lose your life. 
But in praying this prayer, you are saying, God, you are in control. So whether I live or die, I'm yours. Sure like to live, but I am yours. Our, our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, I am positive, pray this prayer, and some of them die. Brutal deaths. That does not mean God didn't come through for them. It means that God's ways are higher than our ways. And we do not always understand what he is doing. And so Jehoshaphat throws the people of God onto God's mercy. Our eyes are on you. And in this case, God speaks through one of the prophets and says, you don't have to fight. I will fight this, but you still got to go down. So this is crazy. I will fight your battle for you. Go to the battle. I would rather go, God, you said you'd fight the battle. We'll back up. We'll watch from over here. We've got some binoculars nowadays. We can watch. No, no, no. God's going to fight for you. Go see it. <laughs> and so they, they advance. Now, here's the craziest part of this. The way that they advance um, in, in this battle is to put the choir in front. I mean, like, this is bad strategy, right? Like, all right, so how are we going to do this? Well, I don't know. Let's, you know what? Worship team, you guys go first. <laughs> we'll, we'll follow behind you. Really, we've got, we've got your back. The choir leads them into, uh, into the battle. So they, as they go to the battle in the middle of the wilderness, they're trusting God to produce his salvation while praising God in the process. They're actually praising God. And Jehoshaphat stands up in verse 20 and says, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And they begin to sing, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 22, and when they began to sing in praise, when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Eventually, they all turn on each other, and the Judeans show up, and the battle's done. The battle's done. The Lord has provided help when asked. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat teaches us that our first instinct is to pray and act and act and pray and wrap prayer around our actions. We saturate our faith, our moving forward with prayer. Now, at the end of chapter 20, we, we get a, a few more uh, facts and figures kind of thrown at us at the end. But God blesses Jehoshaphat with rest towards the end of his reign. Now, he, he, does, he does do some things at the end of his reign that show that he is, he is a human being and he, he falls short. He joins again with Ahab's son, now his son-in-law, as the king of Israel, and they, they try to do a, a joint venture and God destroys that. And that's kind of the last word for Jehoshaphat, even though he followed the Lord. And so what we want to take from the end of chapter 20 is, is especially for those of you who are entering your twilight years. But for all of us, finish well. Finish well. It doesn't mean finish the same as you were doing when you were 25. It means finish well with what God has given you to do. So some of you at home right now, some of you that are here, you're not able to minister in some of the ways that you ministered before, but you are not ministry-less. It's called mail, email, prayer, phone calls. Remember those? 
there are always ways that we can finish well by staying faithful to the Lord and doing what he has tasked us to do right before us. So we don't need everybody in preschool. We do need some more people in preschool. Please talk to Stephanie Wilson and help. We certainly do not need everybody helping in the kitchen, right? Too many cooks. <laughs> what we do need is everyone contributing with the gift that God has given to us. That is how the church is to act. And so when we, when we want to finish well, that means we don't retire from following the Lord. We don't retire from following the Lord. We continue to follow the Lord until the end. So many people, public figures, have not finished well. And it's, it's tragic. And it doesn't mean you have to finish with a bang. It just means you're faithful till the end. It might look like quiet, no one noticing ministry. But let's finish well. God has given us ministry to do. Jehoshaphat did okay. He made some mistakes, but he set his heart to seek the Lord. What are a few takeaways from the life of Jehoshaphat? And by the way, we had to zoom through that. I'd encourage you to go back and read 2 Chronicles 17, 18, 19, and 20 and look at Jehoshaphat's life. But the, the main takeaway here is got to be first instinct prayer. First instinct prayer. How many of you would benefit, how many of us, me, we, us, would benefit from praying more on so, when we're on social media? Might that help us? <laughs> Reading, watching things? Perhaps our first instinct for prayer would help some of us to not open our mouths immediately. Right, two ears, one mouth. Slow to speak. Okay. First instinct, prayer. Whether that means a prayer journal, whether that means a prayer group, whether that means praying for things you see put up on our church Facebook group. Prayer, first instinct, prayer. Another takeaway is rightly defined courage. We need rightly defined courage in 2021. Jesus' courage often is gentle. Gentle, merciful courage. Usually not take no prisoners, blow everything up courage. The gentle kind of courage is a lot harder. This is the kind of courageous Christians we need to be. What about seeking God? I think we need to put feet to this and make it really practical. What does it mean? You know what? Some of you, the, the turn of the new year, 2021, not a big deal, whatever. New year's resolutions, some of you, New Year's resolutions are huge and that's going to help. Whatever's helpful for you. Here we have a new year ahead of us. God gave us the sun and the moon and the stars to set seasons and times. So for this time, how are you, how are we going to seek God? And for many of us, that means you probably need to ask for help. Like That's okay. Like ask for help. Accountability. A text every morning. Um, doing a Bible reading plan together with somebody. Um, whatever it means, seeking God, setting our hearts to seek God is active. Join a community group. Prioritize being with God's people on the Lord's day. Find ways to serve. And the last takeaway is that we all need to be teachers and we all need to be learners. But obviously, that looks way different for all of us. At the very, very, very bare minimum, you are an example for those of the younger people here. Except for the tiniest babies, Holly and Audrey get off 
But everybody else is setting an example, okay? We're setting an example. Set a good example for the believers. And then learn. Now, learning looks different. I understand that. Okay? I'm not a reader. Fine. Um, great, great apologetic stuff, good biblical stuff online. Go subscribe to our podcast. Um, get some ways that you can get involved in, in a YouTube channel that talks about the things of God. But always be learning. Our church library is a fantastic place for all of us. There are books in there for our littlest ones, um, all the way up to some really uh, heavy tomes to read about biographies and autobiographies and theology and fiction and all kinds of great stuff in our library. I commend to you our library, and I thank the library workers uh, for Vicki and Linda and Ben, and now I'm starting to say names, I'm going to leave people out, and for all of you who help in the library, thank you. That means that the sermon is the start. I don't do a good job of this. What if we talked about the sermon at lunch on Sunday? By the way, time out. Not pick the pastor apart on Sunday. Now you, you, you could, I mean, there's, if there's things that are said that need to be picked apart, please go, go for it. But what if, we, what if we dug a little deeper into what this actually means? Because, wow, that was really great. And Monday morning, what was that on again? What was that about? So we always want to be teachers and we always want to be learners. The life of Jehoshaphat is a great one for us to study because sometimes you know those Bible characters that are like, I can't be like that. <laughs> just, that guy's way up here on this pedestal. That's why I love Jehoshaphat and David. They're just, they're, they're broken failures of men and I'm a broken, failed man at times. And to look at these stories gives hope because God in his mercy gives us chance and after chance, after chance, after chance to follow him. So let's be like Jehoshaphat. Let's set our hearts to seek the Lord in 2021. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, this true story that you included in your word for us to learn from, not just to learn the facts or be entertained by a, a quick story, but to actually learn from these men and women of God who have gone before us, and even the failures of those who have gone before us. Lord, we ask that in 2021, you would allow our church to thrive spiritually. Lord, we pray for more baptisms, that people would follow you in obedience and baptism. We pray for more people to join the church as members this year. Lord, we thank you for the faithful giving of this church body. We pray that that would continue so we can support ministries and missionaries. Lord, we pray this, this year that we would see people come to Christ. I look at some of the faces of the people out here and see those who have, have come to this church and heard the good news and been saved. Lord, I pray for more of that this year. I pray that we'd invite our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers to come to church. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to set our hearts to seek you this year. And we pray with Paul, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.